2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Looking ahead to Mother's Day, we're going to hear from the author Anna Malika Tubbs. Her recent book, The Three Mothers, explores how the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped our nation. Later in the program, we'll learn about the lives of Alberta King, Louise Little, and Burtis Baldwin. First, a new comedy out today in movie theaters takes on a serious subject. Life is too short for commas. That's just one of the many wonderful lines and bits of wisdom in the new film Here Today with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Hadditch. The movie is based on The Prize, a short story by the award-winning writer and all-around mensch, Alan Zweibel. He's with us now via Zoom. Alan, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me back, Lois. Pleasure.
2: Billy Crystal is a longtime colleague and among your closest friends. Was it his idea to adapt your story to film?
1: Well, what had happened was I had written this short story and it was published and then I went on The Letterman Show on one of my guest appearances there and I told the story anecdotally. Billy wasn't aware of the short story, but he heard the story that I was telling on The Letterman Show, and he texted me while I was on the show. (laughs) He was watching it. And he uh, said, um, call me when you're done. (laughs) And I did. And he said, why don't we take that story and make it the first scene between an older man and a younger woman, and let's see where it takes us in a script. And that's exactly what we did. And um, the short story was called The Prize, and he and I adapted it into a screenplay, and uh, here we are three years later, and um the movie opens next friday.
2: Mm.
1: well, without
2: spoilers, can you give us a synopsis?
1: yeah, what it is is a real the real synopsis of the movie is that uh, Billy plays an uh an older comedy writer, and he uh has a rich history on broadway and uh in TV and in movies, and he's like an elder statesman. And he uh, he meets a younger woman who won him in a silent auction. Okay, and that's the scene that I told about on the Letterman show. I won't spoil that. It's in the trailer, though. But the short synopsis is, is that they form a friendship and it's an older man, younger woman. It's not a romance, but it's a love story. And um, it's a deep kind of uh, friendship that they develop. And he has the onset of dementia. And once she discovers that in him, she helps him. He's writing a book, which is a tribute to his deceased wife. And he wants to finish the book before he runs out of his words altogether. And she becomes his muse. That's basically the overarching theme of, of the movie. It's real funny, and uh, it will make you cry at the end.
2: Oh, my goodness. I cried before the end. It, it's a gorgeous film. And we are talking about a tragic illness, a very sad story, that you managed to achieve treating this theme with gentle humor and at times outrageous humor that just makes it a stunning combination charlie burns the character played by billy crystal you mentioned he's an acclaimed comedy writer like yourself (laughs) yeah and he works for a late night comedy show this just in which seems a lot like Saturday Night Live. You were one, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a little autobiographical material here. Alan, you were one of the original writers of that show. Is the professional situation of Charlie Burns how you imagine things might have been if you had remained at SNL all 40-some years?
1: Uh, that's a wonderful question, um, yes and no. It's basically though, and I haven't been with the show since 1980, one of the original writers with me was was a man uh, named Herb Sargent, who was a legendary television writer. He produced, that was the week that was, and uh, if you Google him, his uh, some wonderful movies, and when I was 25, he was like 54. He was um, he, he was a mentor. He was on staff there. And when I left the show, uh, and Billy was on the show a few years later, uh, he ultimately had the same relationship with Herb Sargent that I did. So while Herb did not get dementia. That's something that Billy and I pulled from our real lives. My father started having dementia. A relative, uh, uh, Billy, started having dementia. We put that into, but the the character himself is more like Herb, was where he's an older writer among all these younger ones. So in answer to your question, had I stayed there, I'm now 70 years old, Uh, I would have been Herb Sargent, you know, I would have had that kind of status working uh, among all these 25 and 30 year old um, uh, young writers. So a little bit maybe, but like I said, we had a prototype that we both had Herb in mind. We both visioned him and we wrote for him, you know, and then the character evolved the way I told you, you know, with dementia and, uh, and whatever, that that was all manufactured.
2: Ah, well, of course. You were, neither you nor Billy Crystal were putting yourselves right into the character. I, I mean, all artists draw from personal experience, but I wondered. I also wondered, CB, those are the reverse initials of Billy Crystal. Was that intentional?
1: My guess is not, because this is the first time It's come up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm overthinking it, Alan. Billy Crystal BCCB.
1: No, we we gave that character many names before uh, we came upon Charlie Burns. It was just arbitrary. We were just trying to think of somebody of of that era, you know, an older person. uh, What were the names of people that we knew? We took the first name from this person and the last name from that We must have had 12 different kinds of uh, names before we settled on Charlie Burns. And it's spelled with a Z because we couldn't get Clarence on B-E-R-N-S or B-U-R-N-S. So we put a Z in it.
2: Well, that in and of itself reminded me of Mel Brooks' film where he's a writer. He goes by Mel Fun, F-U-N-N. And I thought maybe that was just a riff on how many Jews shortened their names, you know, to something that sounds less dignified than what their original Eastern European Jewish names would have sounded like. So the B-U-R-N-Z lands well. There's a part of the film where we see a 30th anniversary celebration of this just in, the SNL-like TV show, And some of the younger writers think Charlie's 40 years have been more than enough. It's time for him to retire. How does his head writer feel
1: about that? You know, we show in the scene where Charlie Burns is a very important consigliere to the producer. The producer, uh, Charlie Burns, when he was in his heyday gave the producer his start by hiring him on a show. And as uh, that man became the producer of his own show, This Just In, uh, he felt comfortable having uh, Charlie around. Uh, Charlie uh, had a perspective on what's funny, uh, what's not funny, what's proper, you know, what kind of material should be used, what's satiric, and so he acted very much like a, a consigliere to the producer. That's very much what Herb Sargent was in all the years that he was there. He was productive and his aura was permeated the place. So as far as the younger writers in this particular movie are concerned, yeah, there is a generation gap and they uh, have a different kind of humor as every generation does. And they question the man's merit, you know, in the show is, is, you know, we appreciate what he once did, but uh he doesn't do what we do and the producer not only in defending somebody who gave him his own break uh, lays it out for them he says you know he's a very valuable asset to us and uh, as long as i'm here he will be here so he expresses his loyalty but it's also there is worth this is just not a charity case to uh a guy who started the producer
2: now it's a very powerful moment and i think People of a certain age will appreciate that perspective. One scene in the movie is set in a restaurant, and it feels reminiscent of When Harry Met Sally. Alan, the wit, the delivery, is a love letter to the humor we associate with New York comics and the humor you provided for so many comics. The overstatement is at rapid-fire tempo. Tiffany Haddish's character, Emma, orders extra seafood on her seafood salad, and when the platter arrives, Charlie says, look what the tide brought in. Right. Hello, hey. welcome to Le Mont.
1: I'll be your server, what can I get started for you today? Have you ever eaten here before? Nope, they have the greatest steak sandwich in the city, that's all I get when I'm here, trust me, it's fantastic.
0: That sounds perfect. I'll have the seafood
2: salad. Okay.
1: And for you, sir, um, I'm going to have the...
2: Uh, oh, could I have extra clams, extra calamari, and extra crab meat?
0: Of course. Thank you. And for you, sir, I'm going to have Oh, the...
2: and could I have a lobster tail right on top? Ooh, and extra mussels. Lots of mussels. The ones from New Zealand, not the ones from Jersey, because they got them black hairs. Who knows what's in those? You know, that could be really toxic.
1: Are you done? Because there are a few species that you haven't mentioned yet. <laughs>
0: go
1: ahead, go ahead. I'm gonna have Oh, can
0: I have a Diet Coke?
1: <laughs> and for you, sir? I'm gonna have a tuna sandwich, whole wheat toast, and an iced tea. Very good. Now,
2: why would you order a tuna sandwich when you said they had the best steak sandwiches in the city?
1: Because while you were ordering half of the Atlantic Ocean, I developed a hankering for the only fish left on the menu.
2: <laughs> touche, old man, touche.
1: <laughs> Whoa, look what the tide brought in.
2: <laughs> yeah. I have the impression you don't have to work hard. Is this your native language?
1: Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, we skipped over it when I was given the summary of the movie before. But that's the uh, that was exact scene that took place in my short story, "The Prize," because that's what happened when I was the uh, the, the prize of a silent auction, and the the, the winner. Uh, of it, when I finally did have lunch with her, she did have uh, an allergic reaction to seafood, <laughs> and uh, I took her to Lenox Hill Hospital. She didn't have insurance. I bought her an EpiPen, and what cost her $22 to win, a, <laughs> to win lunch with me cost me $1,100, you know. To, uh... So that was the story I mentioned on Letterman, and that's what Billy responded to, and said, let's make that the first scene between an older guy and a younger woman. Wow, so far a tuna sandwich cost me close to two grand.
0: Welcome to New York, pal.
1: In answer to your question, that scene was almost verbatim with what the short story was, but obviously on the set, um, something like Look What the Tide uh, brought in, I think Billy ad-libbed that, you know. So my short story gave a structure, Gave us the beats of uh, what the uh, story of lunch was, but there was a lot of ad libbing that the two of them did when they got on there, uh, got on the set. In answer to your question, uh, yeah, that's where I live. That's in my head. You know, that's um, every writer uh, feels comfortable with a certain sensibility, and uh, so their expression of certain things comes out a certain way, hmm. and that's how that came out. It comes
2: out. Perfectly. In fact, the movie is sort of a love letter to New York, or an aspect of how some creative people live their lives in New York.
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, we shot the movie in New York, we shot in Brooklyn, and we look for locations that ordinarily aren't seen in the movies when you're shooting New York. And it's it looks beautiful. And uh, there's a couple of scenes in particular it was one that took place outside of Lincoln Center yes. at night. Emma, T- Tiffany Haddish's character, didn't know that Billy, Billy's character was having uh, starting to get dementia. She, out of her own curiosity, went to see him on a panel where they were saluting uh, the 30th anniversary of one of his old films. And when he left the theater, uh, Lincoln Center, she caught up with him. They both... Uh, It was dark, it was night, and we didn't know it was going to rain. So we gave them both umbrellas, and it's the most beautiful scene in the world because it's the two of them with a a illuminated Lincoln Center and its it's fountain behind them while they're having this conversation under umbrellas in the rain. So it's just like Woody Allen used to do in his old movies like Manhattan. Uh, we we shot a lot of it in Brooklyn, but we shot across the East River. So you saw that side of Manhattan, you know, the east side of Manhattan. So if you look at it, uh, when you watch the movie, it's a lot of picture postcards of New York City.
2: Yes. And such an unabashed love letter. I mean, The violinist Charlie hears outside his window is Itzhak Perlman. He's a neighbor. By the way, how did Itzhak Perlman's appearance come about?
1: It came about because it happened in real life with my wife Robin and I. It didn't happen with Itzhak Perlman. When we uh, got married, uh, we had our first apartment on 82nd Street in New York. It had two levels to it. And on the top level, which was ground level, there was a patio. And we'd go out on the patio behind us was the Beresford, a historic, beautiful building in New York. And Isaac Stern lived in that building. And Isaac Stern would often practice. And um, we would hear, Robin and I would go out and have wine and cheese. And uh, it's, you know, Isaac Stern was (laughs) more romantic with it. So when I told Billy about it, you know, Isaac Stern uh, has passed away. Billy called Itzcock Perlman and had him play that part. And when he came to the set, what a thrill it was. What a thrill, because he knew what the scene was. And he says, don't, you know, we didn't know what music, you know, how are you gonna tell Iscock Perlman, play this or play that? He says, don't worry about it, I got it covered. And he played, you know, perfectly. He knew what the scene was. It was a dance between Billy and uh, Tiffany. And they were dancing to basically a serenade of sort played by uh, Ishak Perlman, their supposed neighbor.
2: Lebes light, which means love, sorrow. And I thought, what a brilliant touch, because Billy Crystal's character, Charlie Burns, is trying to come to terms with the death of his wife. And I figured, oh, that was a stroke of genius, and I guess leave it to Zach Perlman, Indeed. You can't tell him what to play, but it is just glorious. Gosh, what cherished memories you and Robin have of yeah. that fiddling outside your window. I think Beverly Sills lived in that building, too.
1: Oh, yeah. that's a uh, Jerry Seinfeld now lives there, but I think uh, Adolph Green lived there. A real historic building, you know. There's a few of them that Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein lived in. I get confused between that building sometimes and the Dakota. But there were a few of them where um, that generation, in particular, lived in those buildings. Pre-war, beautiful buildings.
2: Writer Alan Zweibel, his new film Here Today stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal, who also directed. We'll hear more about the movie after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, Says Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the award-winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel. His new movie, Here Today, stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal, who also directed here, Alan talked about addressing the grim subject of dementia within the framework of a comedy.
1: The beauty of the movie is that we treat a dementia with respect. Uh, it's devastation not only on the individual who has it, but on the family uh, who's experienced it along uh, with that uh, person. Uh, there's not one joke in it about forgetting something. There is not one joke where we make light of it. Uh, we treat it with respect and we went out of our way to make sure that it was done that way because so many people are affected by it and so many family members of those people are affected by it. So that that was our approach. I would notice changes in my father. He knew changes uh, in his aunt, Billy did. And just in general, we went, okay, let's handle this with dignity. And you too.
2: And in fact, that's at the essence of Charlie Burns's comedy, as well as yours and Billy Crystal's. I think the producer has a line where he describes Charlie's style as not just comedic, there's humanity
1: to it. Well, that that's the thing, that was the thing that Herb Sargent had taught me that uh, jokes are jokes, which are great because they're social commentaries and they make you laugh, Uh, satire does. But he also told me that, you know, you can do a joke that even if it doesn't get a big laugh, you keep it in because the fact that you delivered that joke will have another uh, importance. Gee, if people went out of the way, to make a joke about climate change. This is back in the seventies, mind you maybe it will make an impression that, oh, this is something that we should pay attention to.
2: I couldn't help but wonder about a touch in the film that reminded me of your memoir of Laugh Lines and your writing about your close friend, the brilliant Gilda Radner, because there are two scenes where Emma... Tiffany Haddish's character, is wearing little birds in her hair. And the character of Charlie's granddaughter is then wearing birds in her hair. Is that related to the first thing that Gilda Radner ever said to you?
1: No, not at all. That's a coincidence when she had asked me to help her because she wanted to impersonate a, a parakeet. Uh, that was a touch I think Billy came up with, That uh, a little bit of the acute uh, eccentricity of uh, Emma's character. And then the granddaughter wears it because she becomes a, a fan of Emma's. So that was uh, basically coincidental.
2: Oh, shucks. And here yeah, I, I thought know. I was looking for all of your self-references.
1: You something? That's a great idea, but no, I can't say uh, <laughs> that that happened that way.
2: Well, it, it's still a, a special touch. Emma's parents were both singers, and in fact, her style is a tribute to old songs. We, we hear her singing a Fats Waller song initially. Would you talk about Emma's character... As she evolves in the film, in contrast to your short story.
1: Well, we gave her life. You know, my short story was told about a lunch, you know. And here, it was very much Billy, as the director, as we were writing it, we were very, very uh, mindful of, okay, who is this character? Where does she go? What is her arc, if you will? So when we came up with a biography for her, That was Billy's idea. Billy has a very rich jazz background. He knows all about, you know, the era, the jazz era and post-jazz. And he gave it to her. I I believe he wrote that speech where she describes her her parents. And what we find is that there's a lot below the waterline with Emma. She seems a little ditzy and flighty, and then uh, there's real substance there. And when she befriends Charlie so she could be helpful to him and make him feel secure and and makes him feel loved. So in order for that to happen, we had to give the character a lot of substance and um, validity.
2: And in fact, they validate each other as artists.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, look, a creative person is a creative person. You might express it in comedy. You might express it in jazz. You might express it in any kind of music. You might express it in painting. But, you know, that's the form of expression. But at the root of it is a uh, creative yearning. It's a a need to express yourself by whatever medium, uh, you know, is your strength. So they connect on an artistic level as well.
2: Do you want to talk about the character of Carrie? Or is that giving too much away?
1: I I think that all we have to say about that is that Carrie is uh, uh, Billy's deceased wife, Billy's character's deceased wife. And it's a a book about her that he is writing. It's an elegy to her when he meets uh, Tiffany and he's having trouble writing it. And like I said earlier, that uh, once she realizes what his affliction is, she becomes his muse in an attempt to help him finish writing this book.
2: When Charlie is asked, how did you become a writer? He said, I don't think you become one, I think you just are. That's you, isn't it, Alan?
1: Well, it's yeah, it's me and Billy, but I, I, I believe that writers are born, that they're not made, there's something in your DNA that um, makes you uh, write. I wake up 5.30 every morning to this very day and um, I start my work. It's I carry a pad with me, as does everyone that I know who does what I do. It's um, a compulsion. Yeah, you can hone your craft. You can learn some tricks. You can uh, obviously you get better as you get older and more experienced. You have a you sharpen your ear, and you become more attuned to the life, the inner life of a character, you know, and his his or uh, her surroundings. But I I don't think that there's anybody making a career decision. Gee, do I become a comedy writer or a shoe store owner? (laughs) So I do think that there's a a need to express, you know.
2: Even though you were perfectly willing to make deli sandwiches while you were trying to earn a living as a writer.
1: Well, I think everybody starts off somewhere. You try to pay the bills, you know. The biggest cliche is actresses starting out as uh, waitresses, you know. You do what you, you have to do to pay bills, but, you know, you stay up a little later or you wake up a little earlier to work on what your dream is.
2: One of my favorite lines in the movie is that Charlie says, the great outdoors would be a lot better if it was indoors. I'm a great believer in the great indoors. I got to tell you, i related to that.
1: Well, me and Billy being, you know, these Jews from Long Island, you know, uh, the thought of hunting or being, uh, you know, waking up and there can be a bear outside (laughs) is, is a horrifying thought. So, uh. You know that was an easy line to write.
2: Sleeping outside, isn't that why God made beds and created roofs?
1: Made of beds and hotels and roofs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, mats that you put on the floor of a bathroom. You know, exactly.
2: There's a beautiful line in this film where Charlie Burns says, "There's a music to comedy. There are notes." Alan Swibel, you are a master composer,
1: and I oh, what a nice compliment! Thank you. Oh, that I'm,
2: I'm going to call you Maestro from now on.
1: Thank you. <laughs> that will be your name for me, and I will respond uh, and uh, with much appreciation. Oh,
2: congratulations! This film is gorgeous, and I am so grateful that you were willing to talk with
1: me about it. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Lois. I look forward to the next time.
2: The award-winning comedy writer, author, playwright, and screenwriter Alan Zweibel. His new movie, Here Today, premieres in theaters nationwide today. Anna Malaika Tubbs has a groundbreaking perspective in her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. The author joins us now via Zoom. Anna Malika Tubbs, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.
2: Alberta King, Louise Little, and Bertis Baldwin. Why are their names barely familiar, though their sons shaped the course of American history in the 20th century.
0: That is the question that really has guided my research. It's really a crime that we've erased their lives and forgotten their names or never learned their names at all, especially as I show through the book. They were so influential on their son's lives. Their sons gave their mothers credit for so much of what they were able to accomplish for our world. And they were important even before they had these sons. They were artists. They were activists, writers, Uh, they all had their own passions and talents and were contributing to the black freedom movement in their own ways and it's just time that the world know their names so i'm really i feel honored that i get to be the person who introduces them in many ways to a larger audience who should have known them all along
2: yeah Ani, you have an impressive academic background with Stanford and Cambridge degrees. Thank you. You are, yeah, you're a PhD candidate in sociology at Cambridge University now. Yes. Would you talk about the role of this book, On the Three Mothers, in terms of your research?
0: Absolutely. I started the research as part of my PhD program. Uh, it's actually very similar to my dissertation. They're different in the sense that the dissertation has a lot more theory, it's kind of more dry, not as interesting to read, um, but <laughs> it allowed me to really explore liberatory motherhood theory and a lot of these sociological concepts around motherhood. But I really knew as I was starting that research that I wanted to join other scholars that were correcting the erasure of Black women's lives. I was extremely inspired by authors like Margot Lee Shetterly, as well as Isabel Wilkerson, uh, Brittany Cooper, and their ability to show how important it is to understand Black American history and Black American lives in order to understand American history and where we are as a country today. So having that theoretical background is definitely helpful, but I should note that the book really does not read like a dissertation. I tried my best. I'm also a fiction writer, so I definitely bring in that creative writing and it's, it's enjoyable to read, if I can say so myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you can't say these three women didn't contribute to history. The contributions of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin are very distinct from one another. How did each mother's background inform the work of their sons?
0: Yes, I'll introduce them each briefly. I'll start with Alberta King. I'll just go alphabetically by their first names. Alberta was born to two parents who really made Ebenezer Baptist what it is today. When they started at the church, there were only about 14 members. And from there, they grew it to be this beacon of hope in the upcoming civil rights movement. They were boycotting papers that disparaged black community members. They protested until the first Black public high school was opened in Atlanta. They used, you know, these very peaceful ways of demonstrating, even though they weren't using the same words like nonviolence. These were the lessons that they taught their daughter, that faith was not faith without a commitment to social justice and fulfilling that here on earth in the way that Jesus would want us to. And so this is what Alberta believes through and through. She's the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She teaches others around her. She's this beautiful, incredible instrumentalist, and she's brilliant and gets a college degree. And even when she meets her husband, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., At the time, he's considered illiterate when he meets her. They're around the same age, but he doesn't have the same opportunities that she does. And she helps him get into Morehouse, and she tutors him through his education. So even his path as a reverend really can't be completed without his wife. And we see that in his autobiography. He thanks her for that. It's a love letter to his wife because he knows without her, his life would have been completely different. So then, of course, we have the introduction of MLK Jr., who follows in his maternal steps and his maternal grandparents' steps and his mother's steps. Of course, he has influence from his father. I'm not trying to erase the father at all. But I also want to make sure that we complete the puzzle without knowing about Alberta's life. You really don't understand where MLK Jr. came up with all of these ideas around nonviolence and this kind of disciplined approach to what he saw as the way to, to accomplish Black freedom. I'll leave Alberta King there for now. Louise Little, i oh, sorry, Burtis Baldwin, to go alphabetical, <laughs> she was born in Deal Island, Maryland, tiny, tiny town. It was really difficult to find a lot of information because smaller places aren't as well recorded in history. But what we know is that she was born to a kind of tragic situation. She never got to know her mother very well. In my own research, I actually think her mother passed away in childbirth. Um, I can't confirm that 100%, but her death certificate says that she died the same month and year that Burtis was born from hemorrhaging. And of course, this is not uncommon um, and still is not uncommon today for Black mothers to lose their lives in childbirth tragically. And so Burtis in this moment of darkness and pain really finds light, love, and hope. That's what she chooses to focus on. And everyone who knew her says that this is something she carries forward through the rest of her life, that you have to confront the darkness. You can't necessarily run or hide from it but you also can't hold on to pain or hatred. You have to focus on moving forward and being kind of a witness to the power of light. And of course we see so much of that in James Baldwin's works. He even calls himself a witness to the power of light and love. And he saw himself as being completely interconnected with his mother. Even when he died, you know, one of his dying wishes was that he would have a double plot grave so that when she passed away after him, she would be buried right next to him. So if you go and visit his grave, it's this shared plaque that says her name in one corner, his in the other, and Baldwin right in the middle. She had eight other children. So to speak about the the closeness of these two and not know her name and think that you're a fan of James Baldwin, again, you're missing even what he saw as one of the most important parts of his life, his relationship with his mother.
2: What should we know about Bertis Baldwin's love for language?
0: Yes, she was a writer, this incredible, again, brilliant writer. At first, when I started the research, I you know, didn't know much about the women, of course. I was finding all these needles and the haystacks and trying to put the pieces of their lives together. And I wasn't sure if she was even educated. Of course, this was a privilege at the time. They were all born in the early 1900s. And I asked her family members that were willing to speak with me. I said, you know, I'm sorry if this is a sensitive question but was she educated? And immediately they all said, oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. She was the most brilliant writer that we ever knew. All of her letters were filled with this language that was metaphor and simile and inspiring. Again, with these messages of love and hope and light. And even the principals at James Baldwin's schools commented on the fact that her letters excusing his absences were beautifully written. I don't know how you write a beautiful <laughs> note that's excusing an absence, but the fact that it was noteworthy really speaks to her her use of language
2: yeah, you you point out that she wrote poetry. So this gorgeous lyrical quality to James Baldwin's writing. He came by from his mother.
0: Yes, yes, his talent. So with the sons, it's it's not only the lessons that they learn. It's not only the way they approach their lives and approach the freedom struggle. It's also their direct talents and skills that are inherited from their mothers. And then now to move forward with Louise Little. She was born outside of the country. She was born in Grenada. Her family is really powerful, strong. They teach her about her many different cultures, Carib Indian culture, West African culture, all about these fighters against colonizers, white supremacy, and how they believed that you stand up for your rights, no matter what. And you don't allow others to to tell you that you're less than, and you have to confront your fear. And so she travels at the age of 17, she leaves Grenada on her own, and joins this Marcus Garvey Pan-African movement in Montreal, Canada. So he's becoming this international orator, speaking all about black independence, black self-sufficiency, fighting against the notion of assimilation and she wants to join that and so she as a writer herself she wants to contribute her talents to this larger fight for black lives and she joins the movement in montreal where she meets her husband and there's more that i could say of course uh their parallels continue but when we talk about malcolm x he didn't just wake up thinking this is my approach to the movement instead he said this is how my parents taught me to think about the importance of black pride Black unity uh, and not assimilating to white culture, instead being proud of who we are as individuals and as an individual community.
2: One of the things I found fascinating that you wrote was about how Louise Little expanded the education of her children. Would you talk about that briefly?
0: Yes, I love that as well. She was very aware that the world was trying to control her children's minds and that as Black children, there were going to be multiple different ways that people would try to attack her kids. One of those ways was through making them think that they were less than by what they were taught from what perspective. And so every time her children come back from school, she has this routine where they sit down at the kitchen table. She's put newspaper clippings out from three different newspapers um, from around the world and also to allow them to know that this struggle for Black freedom is something that's international. It's not only happening in the States, but that they're part of something much, much larger and that they have to contribute to that as well. But they read out loud these papers and if they don't know any of the words, she stops them and makes sure that they go to the dictionary learn the word, and then come back and continue their reading. So even when we think about Malcolm X later, when this kind of famous story of him writing every word from the dictionary down when he's in prison and then later in a reformatory program, we missed part of the puzzle, which is actually that his brother reminded him and there's a letter where he says, remember what mom taught us. And that's when he says, I'm gonna go back to this practice of the dictionary. and does a thing that he'd been doing with her since he was a little boy.
2: Why have these mothers been ignored or omitted from historic consideration?
0: There's a lot that I could say about that. I think that as Black women, we still feel this kind of erasure to this day. Many put so much pressure on our shoulders and so much burden to take care of others, but we're never thanked for the work that we do. Instead, we're only blamed if something goes quote unquote wrong. We don't talk about the circumstances that have pushed Black families into situations that we don't want to be in. And instead, quite often, we've blamed Black mothers. This happened with the Moynihan Report in. You know, the 60s, it happened with so many different tropes that tried to vilify Black mothers and Black women, like the Jezebel trope and the mammy and the matriarch and the welfare queen that just continue to erase our humanity. And by not knowing their stories today, it's a continued part of this dehumanization and this erasure. And I really think it comes down to a lack of appreciation for the work that Black women have done, not only for our families, but for this entire nation.
2: What does the proximity and age of the three mothers allow you to explore?
0: Yes, that's actually how I narrowed down who I was gonna write about. Uh, I had so many different options in terms of people who I felt very inspired by and mothers that I could write about. I think that there's endless amounts of stories left to tell and I hope more of them will be told now. But I ended up deciding on these three because the mothers were all born within six years of each other. And then the sons were all born, the famous sons were all born within five years of each other later in the twenties. And that allowed me to also offer a perspective of a century of American history through the lives and the experiences of black women and to see the world through their eyes. So I could talk about, and which is what I do in the book, I give clear historic examples so that we can think about how Each world war affected them differently, how the Great Depression affected them, how, you know, the Cold War, how each president and their policies impacted their lives differently. And I give this new approach to our our country's history and a new understanding for how we arrived where we are today.
2: Two of these women lost young sons to violent death. The loss of a child is irreconcilable to a parent. These sons were murdered. How did the mothers continue their lives?
0: It's heartbreaking. And even before I speak about that ability to continue, I want to note how important it was to me that we also understand the humanity of the sons. We've thought about them as these historic figures. And I think in a lot of ways, we forget that they were human beings with their own feelings, with their own families, how painful it was for them to even do their work day in and day out and risk their lives for the rest of us. But it's something that's important to pay attention to. All three of the mothers outlived their sons. MLK Jr., Malcolm X, yes, were shot when they were so young, really at the prime of their lives. Their families were very young. Their children were very young. And the mothers really saw their role almost changed a little bit, that they now needed to be part of their grandchildren's journeys and they needed to educate the next generation of their families and continue the legacy that they'd passed on to their children and that their children had now passed back to them in passing. They found it important to continue that work, to focus again on moving forward. With Alberta, she had to focus on her faith And this was what she preached her whole life, that this was part of God's plan, even if she didn't understand it. It's something I also wish I'd known more about if we could find letters that the mothers wrote themselves or had heard more from their perspective, because I think we assume many times, even today, that these Black mothers have this supernatural strength and so we focused more on wow they were able to push forward and look how strong they were but i'm sure that there was much more to it i'm sure there was much more conflict much more sadness much more anger than they allowed others to see
2: anger and anguish anna how has honoring these three mothers informed your own motherhood
0: It's been really a powerful and very epic journey, Uh, not only completing this book, but I also became a mother through this whole process. I was in the middle of my research when I found out I was expecting my son. Part of that, of course, very exciting. I was overwhelmed with joy, but any mother knows that you also are are overwhelmed with fear. You start to worry about everything that could hurt your child, especially as a Black woman in the United States where... Really, you are risking your life in a lot of ways, no matter how educated you are, no matter how much income you have, you're more likely to die in childbirth and in pregnancy if you're a Black woman in the United States. That fear is something that I was able to confront by spending this time learning about Alberta, Burtis, and Louise's lives. They never gave up. They never accepted these things as inevitable lots. But instead said, we are part of transforming this world for ourselves and for our children. And our children will join us in making that change, something that's possible and bringing our vision of what's possible in our nation to life, making that reality. So that was inspiring for me. It allowed me to see motherhood as something that's powerful, influential, So many mothers comment on the fact that they really feel they lose their identities and people don't appreciate them anymore. And they don't pay attention to them as individuals. They don't care what their own passions were anymore. And I could see in these three women how they were able to keep their own identities alive and make sure that their sons knew that they were human beings as well. They had this balance of both vulnerability as well as strength. But I feel that their ability to be honest with their children also allowed these sons to have a very deep understanding of the human condition and was also a, an important component of their ability to, to transform the systems that they were able to impact for all of us. So yeah, I, would, I guess to summarize it, it made me feel strong. It made me feel hopeful, even in those moments of fear.
2: Anna Malaika Tubbs, her new book is The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is the first time, written and performed by Joe Grantston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Next Tuesday, please join us for City Lights Live Outdoors on the Georgia Tech Skyline stage. I'll host a concert with musicians from ATL Collective performing a night of blues standards from Georgia's past and featuring Athens' own Cicada Rhythms. WABE's H. Johnson will be there too. Tickets are available at WABE.org. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. And I'm Lois Sprites. I'm inching toward another round number of followers, and I would just absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at WABE.org citylights City Lights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. Happy Mother's Day to everyone celebrating. And thanks for listening to Member Support at WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.